0: Hello, this is Jamie Club of Club Chimera Martial Arts. You are listening to T.W. Smith at Kung Fu Podcasts. Once you have finished truly appreciating and enjoying the dulcet tones of this masterful intellectual blend of martial arts education that should smoothly run down into your soul like the American South's finest distilled grains, I would like to recommend... That you pop over the Atlantic and clap your king leers around an episode of Jamie Club's Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. In the meantime, please explore the culture, adventure, and the impact of martial arts that is T.W. Smith's Kung Fu Podcast. Welcome to Kung Fu Podcast, where we explore the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. And I'm your host, T.W. Smith. In today's episode, we're going to look into the grains of truth and the first nationally recognized figure of Wing Chun, who just so happened to be an assassin. If this is your first time here to the program, welcome. You're in the audience of some of the finest and sharpest martial artists in the world, people that put in a great deal of care. A great deal of effort into honing their craft. This episode is going to be built around an essay by Professor Ben Junkins, who you can find over at Kung Fu Tea. He's been part of this program literally from day one, uh, and it's always great to bring some of his work out here so that you can digest it in a place that you're comfortable, in your car, out for a walk, or maybe even get ready for practice. In this section I titled, Legends and Multiple Grains of Truth." what keeps historians and folklorists on their toes is the fact that many legends contain at least one grain of absolute truth this becomes extremely problematic for academics whose you know whole research is based on studying truths and facts hunting them down and then you come to find out that a legend contains many more than one grain of truth front and center Consider the case of the Pied Piper of Hamlin. This very special legend interweaves multiple truthful grains into a fantastic story. The mere existence of these truth grains has attracted numbers of researchers over the years. The story is set in the late 1200s in Lower Saxony, Germany, particularly around the year of 1284. One of these grains of truth is that unfortunately a large number of children really were lost from the town during the time. Another part of this historical truth of that legend is that a musical figure wearing colorful clothes did actually become something of a local hero at the time, and the Pied Piper was revered and even memorialized in a stained glass window of a local church around 1300. The church was regrettably destroyed by fire in 1660. However, we still have the written descriptions of the original window. Historians and genealogists have both noted that there were multiple rounds of outward migration from Hamlin as new areas opened up into settlements such as Poland, eastern Germany, and Transylvania. These waves often featured an outflowing of Saxon children and landless youth who were either recruited from or in some cases sold by the town to brightly dressed recruiters and labor organizers. So we're looking at early slave child trafficking. The newspaper, the British BBC, had an article in 2019 by Stephen McGrath, and it was titled, The Last of Transylvania Saxons, which was an account of how they began arriving in Transylvania in the 12th century and has more recently vanished from the population. McMath writes, quote, The Saxons first arrived in Romania's Transylvania region in the 12th century from areas that today constitute Germany, France, Belgium, and Luxembourg. He continues, The church bells slowly toll, and the smell of fresh roses permeate the air as 25 local Saxons, both young and old, file into the 14th century fortified church for Sunday morning prayers. In Transylvania, There were around 345 Saxon churches in the Middle Ages. Now, only a half of them still stand. The churches were positioned on high points overlooking the communities. Stone structures punctuated with watchtowers and surrounded by high defensive stone walls. The Saxons were a pious people, and the church, which acted as a safe house when under siege, was the center point of their community. These truths are undeniable, and as J.R.R. Tolkien, in his role as a professor of medieval literature, has noted that creative individuals often drew on a wide variety of historical sources, and then they were combined, hybridized, reimagined, inverted, or reframed in an attempt to generate a new story that was both engaging and meaningful. When examining a legend, historians or philologists can usually pick out identifiable fragments that either came before or after. But the really important aspect of this process is the recombination and what that suggests about the original author's creative world. The story of the Pied Piper is simple enough that one can see that process just playing out. But more importantly for this episode, we can find these same mechanisms at work in the creation myths and the subsequent legends that define the shared culture of the martial arts. The relatively recent generation of mini-styles makes this process more transparent than something from the classical past. One could easily consider the tales of the Red Boat Opera's political assassins. They were diligently seeking the overthrow of the hated Qing dynasty, there was a popular class of legends throughout the southern martial culture, and especially within the Wing Chun community. The focus here is on the marginal and mobile nature of the Cantonese theater companies that regularly traveled the waterways of Guangdong during the festival seasons. These legendary assassins would move along from one small village to the next, and staying only a few nights in any location. They sound like Jason Bourne, right? Such waterway crafts were found everywhere along the branches of the Pearl River, so much so that they could pass mostly unnoticed by respectable society, pretty much just hiding in plain sight. The real grain of truth here, though, is that actors in this opera were actually trained in various types of martial arts, which made up an important part of their performance skill sets. Even though the actors came well before the historical 1870 Red Boats, in fact, The Red Boat Opera did not hit their peak until the 20th century, so the facts are there, they just got rearranged a little bit. Also contributing to the legend were also vague memories of the colorful role that opera performers had played during the Red Turban Uprising during the 1850s. Vernacular Opera was even banned in the area for an entire decade following the uprising as the government cracked down on all sorts of subversive forces then perhaps it was only natural that as Wing Chun gained popularity in the 1920s, these earlier memories would be combined with the sudden growth of Chinese nationalism and anti-Manchu sentiment that accompanied the 1911 birth of the Republic. As this story goes, Lung John was born in 1826 and he lived in Guangdong and he was also the Wing Chun Grand Master of Ip Man. He was taught the entire Wing Chun skill system around 1846 by Wang Wa Bo. This is important for this episode because Wang Wa Bo was an accomplished opera actor and obviously a very skilled and veteran martial artist. Many martial art styles would vigorously deny any link to the theater, but Wing Chun openly celebrated this, placing Lung Chung at the epicenter of a shadowy past in which the style was spread by legendary actors. Also, current era students that are historically verifiable and often relatively affluent begin to appear at this time. Given this popular enthusiasm for revolutionary heroes in the 1920s and 30s, it is not surprising at all that these fantastic stories of anti-government actors assassinating hated officials with their incredible martial arts skills began to appear. And that was all before they would vanish into the Pearl River's crowded waterways. Now, when I was reading that, I could just imagine the busyness of the waterways, everything happening in the city, kind of like a modern-day version of things happening downtown at the city, and then the bad guys hop in their car, and they jump on the uh, freeway, and they pretty much just hide inside the traffic. Well, the obvious issue of these stories, much like the Pied Pipers, is that they have this such extraordinary nature. It is good to remember this academic fact. The Chinese authorities were exceptionally bureaucratic and kept seriously detailed personal notes and records on the transfers, promotions, demotions, or unexpected deaths of any of their officials. Any death, mysterious or mundane, generated a very detailed investigation that would get passed all the way up the chain of command to the throne itself. As painful as it is to say this, there is no historical evidence of politically motivated kung fu killers plying the waters of the Pearl River. I don't care how many good kung fu movies you've seen, there's no historical evidence of it. The amount of real life paperwork that such a campaign would have generated is absolutely staggering. This, however, is not to in any way to imply or to mean that everything was peaceful nor that being a government official was necessarily a safe job at all during the early 1800s pirate fleets of hundreds or even thousands of vessels burned down small cities with an alarming degree of regularity down the timeline a little bit local clans fought small scale civil wars among themselves that sometimes required government intervention Secret societies, which we've had a whole series of podcasts here at Kung Fu Podcast about, many of them had rituals promising to restore the Ming, and they were becoming increasingly more implicated in all sorts of organized crime. And by the end of the 1800s, good old-fashioned banditry seemed determined to make their way back and to take up the slack left by the disappearance of the pirates. Let us also not forget the importance of salt and opium smuggling into the local economy. All of this is meant to say that there were immense opportunities for any young man seeking to test their Kung Fu in southern China during this tumultuous 19th century. But this type of violence that tended to happen tended to be non-politically and reasonably understood. However, this is going to change in the early years of the 1900s. We are now in the period when foreign diplomats began to send intelligence cables. These report cables described rising levels of national consciousness within the Han population and violent revolutionary feelings among a minority of them. In 1905, Sun Yat-sen and Sung Jorn founded a genuinely politically secret society named Tongmenghui, which attempted to recruit young intellectuals and revolutionaries. While at the same time they were recruiting, they were also trying to combine the efforts of smaller anti-government groups. The early 1900s would see a number of high-profile political assassinations of government officials. Unfortunately, politically motivated killings would remain a common feature of Chinese public life throughout the 1940s. Yet these acts were carried out with explosives, rifles, and handguns, rather than traditional martial arts. There was also a natural convergence among certain individuals whose political beliefs attracted them to both martial arts practice and revolutionary terrorism. What is often forgotten is that the first Wing Chun practitioner to gain national notoriety was not Ip Man or Bruce Lee. In this essay, this is where you see a picture a Wen Kai, who lived from 1870 to 1911. And the picture was taken just moments before his execution. He looks amazingly calm and younger than 41. He's standing in front of a wall with his clothes torn. And we're going to delve further into this man, Wen Kai, That is Wing Chung's best-known revolutionary martyr. Wen Kai was born to a family in the far eastern district of Guangdong in 1870. He lost his father at the age of six. At the age of 14 in 1884, he was abducted and then became a child trafficking victim. He was forced to act as unskilled laborer to a tin mine in Ipoh, Malaysia. Wen Shankai was subjected to a lot of abuse, but he survived. He eventually managed to escape. Wen Shankai returned and he stopped in a part of what was Guangdong at the time. It was at this stop where he studied a branch of the Wing Chun. At some point in time he briefly joined their army, but he did not have much of a career there. In nineteen oh one, when Shanghai traveled to Taiwan, where he stayed for a couple of years, he returned to southern China, and then he went back to Malaysia to work again as a miner, so he was getting pretty desperate for money at the time. It was in nineteen oh six when Sun Yat sen visited the area in an attempt to raise money for his cause and to recruit followers, and Wen Shanghai was moved by one of Sun Yat sen's speeches. He soon joined a branch of to the Tongmenghui, Men which was more interested in taking direct action than political philosophy. It is said that Wen became a very active member and organizer while he was in Malaysia. It was in the March of 1910 when Wen Shanghai returned to southern China determined to carry out a high-profile political killing. His initial plans were thwarted when he was unable to procure the types of explosives necessary to carry out a bombing. But he did succeed in acquiring a handgun. His intended target was Li Shun, a high-ranking officer in the Chinese Navy. On April 11th, Wen Chang Kai went to a tea house where a number of government officials had gathered, and they were there for an aerial exhibition sponsored by the French. At the end of the event, Wen Wencheng Kai rushed out of the tea house, firing at what he believed to be his target, Li Shun's screen sedan chair. However, in fact, the vehicle was occupied by General Fu Qi, who died after being shot in the forehead, temple, neck, and torso. Fu Chi's son, in the following sedan chair, fled and raised the alarm as Wen Shang Kai was really hauling ass trying to escape the sea. But unbeknownst to Wen Shang Kai, he was being followed by a plainclothes detective as he fled through the wooded area. After emerging on the other side, he was tackled to the ground and more police officers were called and they took him in. On April 15th, Wen Shanghai was executed at the age of 41, which was the date of that picture. He immediately came to be seen as a nationalist martyr and his exploits were reported in papers throughout the diaspora. Wen Chiang Kai's life even became the subject of opera performances throughout southern China. Very little of this historical and political discussion mentioned anything about his study of the martial arts. We can't verify about his experience with Wing Chun through standard historical sources. To this point, I read three other resources on the same account. John Shen's work in the chapter, The Assassination of the Prince Regent, discusses Fu Chi's assassination. The fact that Wen was strapped for money and he worked for the railway to cover travel expenses. John Shen also wrote that at the interrogation, Wen was fearless and talkative. Condemning the Manchurian government's corruption and the revolution. When asked about the other masterminds in his party, Wen said, quote, All the Chinese under heaven are members of the same party as mine. End quote. In another resource, they show you how careful you had to be when you were writing under the censorship at the time, especially if you believed in something that perhaps the government didn't. In this resource, they write, quote, The sky was dark the earth desolate, and the world full of hatred and poison. The sound of a revolver exploded like thunder. The name of Wing Sang Chai would be forever remembered. The three other resources I read pretty much say the same thing. They detail that April eleventh, Wing Seng Chai went into Guangdong. He assassinated General Fu Chi. On April thirteenth, the entire area was put under martial law. Very unpleasant business that would be. Then by April 15th, Wen had been captured, interrogated, and executed. They had a particularly swift system over there. Four days and done. A little later, the Jing Wu Association gets involved. And if you're a martial artist, Asian martial artist, knowing what the Jing Wu Association is and was can be very informative. But they began to amplify aspects of his story in the decade after his death. What is often not appreciated is the fact that while Jingwu originated in Shanghai, most of his founding members were actually immigrant businessmen from Guangdong. Now while they did not promote or teach the southern martial arts, they certainly took a keen interest in any events in the area. You can see this in their 10th anniversary commemorative volume published in 1919. In a section of Miscellaneous Thoughts, which focused on political or social criticisms, Jing Wu's main propagandist and journalist recorded the following note, Wing-Sang Chai, the martyr who assassinated Fu Chi, was from Mei County, Guangdong. He was skilled in the Wing-Chung boxing art. His son... Wei Chen is now a martial arts instructor, and Wu Yongcheng. End quote. Wu Yongcheng is another name for Guangzhou. This brief remembrance is significant as it is the very first published mention of Wing Chong and Wen Cheng Chai that Dr. Junkins had been able to find. Further importance is that this was directed at a national readership, effectively recasting Wen Cheng Kai's narrative in such a way that his association with the Chinese practices became his defining attribute. In doing so, this Jinwu narrative sought to polish the revolutionary credentials of these practices at a time when they were increasingly coming under attack by the May 4th modernists. And as we know, nothing lasts forever, not even revolutionary fame. Wenchang Chai has subsequently been all but forgotten in the modern Chun community. I don't think I have ever even seen his story discussed in an English language resource. To be honest, there isn't much written about him in the Chinese either. He is the sort of figure that gets short encyclopedia entries recounting his deeds, but not of his life. Most of these accounts focus only on the killing of General Fu Chi, totally skipping the trauma of his youth or his experience with the martial Lawrence. Still, there was a time in the early 20th century when this part of his narrative was more widely known and celebrated. One cannot help but notice that this is roughly the same era when most of Wing Chun's modern myths and legends were starting to come together. Dr. Junkin states that one can wonder how much of Wen Chun Kai's memory, combined with older legends of the Red Turban Uprising and the generally activist atmosphere of the time, has shaped our imagination of Wing Chun's revolutionary past. One way or another, it is important to realize that Wing Chun Kai, not Bruce Lee or Ip Man, was the first Wing Chun student to become a nationally recognized figure in China. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Get out to practice today, whether you do Wing Chun, Low Praying Mantis, Little Tibetan Lama Pie, whatever you might do, work on it hard today. Have a great time, and I look forward to talking with you again real soon.